0: Do selfies only extend to taking a picture of oneself or does it extend to taking a picture with other people?
1: I would say that that might be a philosophical question and one that I am neither hip nor knowledgeable enough to answer. I think you just define it however you want to in your experiences. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice, interesting phrasing on my part, with science. Woo. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson at the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sesson Nagosh at San Diego State University. If you notice, Jacob's voice has changed quite substantially. Actually, it's a new person. Um, Jacob has some exciting changes in his personal life that'll take him away from the pod for the rest of the season. However, we're very, very super lucky and excited to have Sesson join us as a guest host are so thrilled to have you.
0: Thank you. Very excited to be here and be with you both. I've done so- a podcast before I somehow have gone. I'll be here.
1: I must really like you too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, uh, we like you too. So how convenient is that? so, um, so today, Session is going to bring us a discussion about an HBO romantic comedy in pop and culture. You know how I love rom-com, so I'm definitely here for that. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Affair Recovery, exploring similarities and differences of injured and involved partners. And then in good or bad advice, we'll talk about a new card game called Red Flags. It's about uh, relationships. Hmm. I know it's a new thing, um, but I am excited to share it with you. Cool. As always, if you have some advice you'd like to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at, attachedpodcast at gmail.com, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us all at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, the World Wide Web, wherever it may be, um, please rate and review it. And of course, as always, gently smash that subscribe button. Before we get to all of that goodness on today's episode... What have you been up to? We're kind of mixing up an order here. What? (laughs) So I have been up
2: to playing Wordle for a while. This has been a thing for a while. Yes, I realize. I would like to claim being an early adopter. Oh my Um, gosh. It's so pop culture uh, of you. (laughs) Is it? Yeah, I feel like it is actually. Yeah, Yeah, we're going to go with that. However, despite playing this for quite some time, I only recently realized that there is a strategy to (laughs) play this game. So I thought my strategy of trying a different starting word with two vowels in it every time I play was very smart of me. (laughs) Sure. So for people who aren't familiar, which I assume is um, none of you, <laughs> um, it's just a word guessing game the words are five letters you get six tries to guess it and each guess it will tell you if you've got a letter that's correct and if that correct letter is in the right spot so that each subsequent guess sort of builds on your prior guesses so if you get a really great first word it should enhance the likelihood that not only you solve it but you solve it within just a few guesses <laughs> right <laughs> However, I recently had a friend share the strategy that some friends of hers had discovered uh-huh. that you should use words with three vowels. And that had never occurred to me. <laughs> I couldn't even come. Up with one and then they also don't use the letters they get right in the subsequent guess so they will guess two words first um that are totally different from each other to knock out as many letters as possible and to maximize likelihood they get it on the third guess
1: wow my mind
2: was both blown and sad (laughs) <laughs> because oh. it had not occurred to me whatsoever. And the whole time I've been laughing at my husband, who is guessing every single time the first words, not because it maximizes his chances of success,
1: but only because the day that it's finally words, <laughs> he's going to be so excited. He got it on the I spot. mean, I'm not mad about that strategy. It's I true. mean...
2: Yep. Then he guesses random other words because he didn't understand how to use the words (laughs) that have been guessed. Right. 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 So his strategy to combine those together. My daughter always guesses. Apparently I learned today the word wrong because sometime it's going to be right. And today the word was rung, W-R-U-N-G. So what? she came running over like, ah! And oh. That's how you realized my entire
1: family was not mm. as bright as we could be. <laughs> my goodness. I also play Wordall. Oh, and yeah. my word, I mean, it had to have been rung, but I could not for the life of me figure out what oh, it was. Well, I didn't get it? it this time. And you just oh, told me as I got the letters... Oh, you. No, that must not be right. Anyway, I got all those letters and I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it was. I guessed it again and I still could not figure out what the word was until you just revealed it to me. Charlotte revealed it to me. So I'm about to get it in one guess when we get off this today. (laughs) For the first time ever, <laughs> amazing! <laughs> Al Sazen, again, thank you so much for stepping in and being a guest host. So many words of gratitude towards you right now. Um, we greatly, really greatly appreciate it. But we know we you live in San Diego. What's life like in the Big SD? I'm sure people definitely call it that, right? The Big SD. That's definitely something that happens, not just something I just made up.
0: <laughs> well, I think there might be a subpopulation of people who <laughs> respond. To- <laughs> Somewhere in San Diego. Um, I think it's short enough that we refer to it as San Diego. Also, Kumeyaay land, which the Kumeyaay were the original inhabitants of San Diego about 10,000 years ago. So we want to acknowledge that the land that we sit on, that yes, we nourish from, is um, Kumeyaay land. Kumi- so, I, Kumi- but San Diego is great. I have to say we're feeling very fortunate right now because we know and we hear about what the weather is like in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And it is mm-hmm. nothing like that here. It is like...
1: <laughs> so it, uh, it braggadocious. So,
0: I have to admit that I am feeling really grateful. I know I moved here in large part because the weather is always great, but, hmm. you know, around the months of January, February in particular, we tend to feel really excited that we made the choice to be yeah. in San Diego. The, the 70 degree weather does not hurt right now. Um, <laughs> we're taking our kid to soccer in a little bit and we get to actually just be in, you know, t-shirts and Stop I will it. wear shorts, but other people might. Um, <laughs> it's, not- it's an option. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, an it's, it's an option, it's an option for people, for it's for not people. an option
1: for me. When I woke up, it was 19 <laughs> degrees here, snow <laughs> on the ground, so not an option for me. <laughs> That's amazing.
0: There should be a show called Is It An Option or Not an Option? <laughs> like that, like
1: option. not an option. Not All an right. option. Sorry, yeah. I have a question for you guys on a scale of zero to five zero being no way and five being oh my gosh yes please how much do you like crab rangoons wow dead silence
2: i know dead. do i even have a ranking i guess i don't know
1: <laughs> one or two two yeah oh. sure oh. i
2: don't know it's not okay. that i dislike them i just don't know that i have a strong feeling about them okay, okay. um can
0: i ask a question before that answer of course. what is it, what is it? Oh i mean God. that might help me answer the question i think pretty pretty <laughs> it's uh, a zero first. i was going to pretend like i knew and just answer three like somewhere in the middle so maybe somebody yeah, yeah, would fair. ask my follow-up true.
1: questions fair. yeah i'm <laughs> um, gonna be honest this did not go the way i had anticipated <laughs> there might so. be a lot of that with me i have a very <laughs> limited i mean of- same with woods um, so it's a wonton wrapper uh-huh. with I knew crab yes. and cream oh. cheese wrapped yeah. into it, and it's deep fried. Gluten now, yeah. But yes, I do recall now. So that would be a two. hard, hard one. Not so at are not at zeroes. <laughs> You're telling me there's a chance. I'll take it. What if she had come in with hard five? She's like, oh, that's what those are? A hundred percent. like, I'm obsessed <laughs> with those things.
0: <laughs> Honestly, it gets a one versus, it was zero even an option. If, if it, it was, was, I would have probably. Okay. Oh, yeah. a one versus zero, because I might just not have known what it was not in it and like- Oh, yeah. if i'm hungry enough i think i could but the truth is me and cream cheese and food besides bagels are not an option and like they are not i option. did that one point not an Shorts, option I... cream cheese same category <laughs> <Shorts>. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong i gotta have my cream cheese and my bagels but i don't not... believe for myself that i can
1: mix them anymore Yeah. With other foods. I can see it's a belief system that you've created around cream cheese. And I respect that. I respect those decisions. So for me, um, it's the new thing that I... um, just we'll get if it's on a menu to see how the restaurant is doing it because it's always sure. done so different. <laughs> As you can see where the story is going, I anticipated you guys are going to be more around a three or a four. So you would understand sure. like, oh, that's a clever idea. But sure. anyway, I'm just going to keep on okay. moving forward. It's so much fun because they're always a little bit different mm-hmm. and it's good and fun to see what is this restaurant? How are they going to interpret this crab rangoon, which I'm sure is not anywhere near authentic because I've had it at Thai restaurants, Japanese restaurants and Chinese restaurants, which could just be an East Tennessee thing. They just have anything that's like remotely on the <laughs> continent of Asia. They're like crab rangoons. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, it's a lot of fun to um, see the different um, flavor profiles. I have not yet ventured sure. on to making them myself because I don't really. Oh, do- that's where I thought you were headed. No, oh. that seems like go so up your alley. I know, but I um, have never deep fried anything before in my life, like personally. Oh.
2: Oh, I feel like this is where we're headed in the pandemic is we're going to take up deep frying now. I feel like you've done the pickling and the saucing and the breading mm-hmm.
1: and the, yeah, I feel like frying is next. You think large amounts of oil just scare me? Like yeah. hot oil? Sure. Is very yeah. scary Dangerous. Will I just freehandedly go on a mandolin? Yes. Large <laughs> vats of boiling oil? oil. No. So they're just different
0: things that I'm willing to do. Sure. Yeah. There are limits to your cooking. I get it.
1: There are limits.
2: <laughs> I can't do everything, you guys. I just can't. Shorts you can do. No? Oh, she's zero
1: on shorts. Too. <laughs> shorts are not a thing. <laughs> Never mind. I think I, I need more skirts if I'm going to do something that- Got it. my knee. You wear a lot of skirts in the Midwest. I remember that. A lot I of times too. But tights yeah. and skirts, Maybe. man. Still rocking it. My fashion sense has not changed over the past- have we known each other for fifteen years?
0: Yeah, we have yeah. more than that now. Yeah, yeah, it's not changed. Fortunately, I've always liked the way you dress. I think you will have a very like. <laughs> oh, it cool. is all about Sessom. Well, gosh, <laughs> that, didn't, that sounded different. Yeah, no, I well, mean, I agree. Thing,
1: no, not changing your style. Well, not changing. I don't disagree with anything <laughs> said. Like if Sessom Nagaj likes my style, that's so true. Though i God, it's I'm true. Very happy about it. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sesson, what you got for us?
0: Well, I have been enjoying, well, for me, it's new. Um, for <laughs> many folks, it may not be so new, but it's a romantic comedy anthology series on HBO max. And Mm -hmm. it goes through the journey of uh, two millennials trying to navigate the dating world in their twenties. I typically steer away from romantic comedies because they frustrate me quite a bit Mm -hmm. in terms of there's a certain order for how things happen and the ending. I can almost Mm -hmm. direct myself. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like I was uh, sitting on the couch looking for something different. Um, we're watching a lot of really dark shows. <laughs> so it's like I need something light and makes my yeah. heart warm. So that's not always a dating show, but I definitely thought I'm going to give it a try because I really like Anna Hendricks and she is the main character um, for the first season. So- yeah. I thought, okay, even if I don't enjoy the show, maybe she'll do a little dancing and performing and I will enjoy that because she's just really good at that. Um, (laughs) So side note, she does this episode dancing thing on, what is that show that has famous actors and actresses perform do like, it was hosted by like LL Cool
1: J. Oh, that. yes. Jimmy Fallon did it for a little, or he's like the producer of it. And also very notably, Tom Holland and Zendaya did the oh, 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 battle. Sure, it's sure, like sure. lip sync battle. Nice. Yes.
0: Yeah, so that I watched it sparingly, but she happened to be on an episode and she did this performance. I think it She's was Beyond so or something like, She was just so fantastic. And I was very excited and looked for some of the shows that she was on. And so I came across this and um, she plays this character, Darby Carter, and she's a young heterosexual cisgender white woman in her 20s looking for love while also navigating the dating world in New York City, career family and friends. And then there's a the second season with William Jackson, Harper's whose character is Marcus Watkin. And I also really loved him from the good, what is it? The good, me and titles are really, really-
1: Good wife? Uh, good, I know Matthew Good, but that's an actor.
0: No, no, it's the show this is a with fun game. Ted Danson, I know.
2: <laughs> good, place. good place. Good place. Yes,
0: go. got it. The good place. Yes, shitty. Yeah, exactly. I'm a big fan. He plays a black, heterosexual, cisgender man in his 20s, trying to rebuild his life after having an emotional affair Mm. with a character on the show, which leads to his divorce from his first wife. And then he's navigating life post-divorce and trying to figure out who his person is, right? Because he thought it was his first wife and realized that, you know, he had made a lot of mistakes during that relationship. And struggles to sort of find the one again without giving anything away. It's a show that really, I think, does a pretty decent job of sort of touching on some of the complexities of dating really highlights the fact that dating is not like a linear experience, Mm. that there's a lot of experiences that you have to have with friends, family, and people that you date to really have a real sense of what it is that you're looking for, right? That's something that I think the characters sort of define as they're going through relationships, realizing what they need and don't need. Um, So I really enjoyed it. It had um, just sort of the right amount of lightheartedness, but touched, I think, also on some familial dynamics with family of origin and how Mm -hmm. those relationships too do influence the way you navigate through dating. And so what's also fun about the show is that in that season, each episode reflects a different sort of relationship Almost. And so you really get to be with them for a full season and not just this two hour bit or half hour, you know, comedy sitcom. So I really like that. I got to feel like I connected with some of the characters. I think my dating history looked very different than the way theirs did. Maybe <laughs> dating in New York looks really different, but it still felt real enough. You know, a lot of questions came up for me as I was watching those shows and one of the questions for me and I don't know what you all think, but I'm curious, it raises the question for me about how we feel prepared to go through the journey of dating and What I mean by that is thinking about all of the ways we start to think about what adulthood is going to look like as we navigate through high school and getting really ready to launch into the world. Mm. And whether or not the dating aspect feels like something we have to really tackle and work through as opposed to like, oh, there's this experience that I'm going to have and not seeing it for what it really is. It's sort of a stage of life. It feels like it's not Mm. something for some people, you know, you meet the one really quickly, but for most of us, that's just not how it works. It is a series of different experiences over what can be a very long period of time for each of the characters in the show. It followed them for like about 10 years as they were sort of figuring it out. So that's one question I have. Yeah. So should we be thinking more about dating as sort of a stage of life? So my other question is just how much do the relationships that we have along the way influence Mm. ultimately where we end up, right? If I hadn't met this other person, would I be with the person I'm with now Mm -hmm. or in many ways feel really appreciative for the past experiences despite how sometimes painful or difficult right those experiences were so just really embracing the fact that it is a journey and all that comes with that the good the bad and the hard right
1: no I like that phrasing because so often we think of like one dating is a skill set we're all born with almost like you enter adulthood and you're gifted dating skills, but it is a learning process and it's not necessarily something that you have automatically, which is challenging because people think, well, if I don't have these skills, there's something inherently wrong with me. And that's kind of a message we get a lot in the media. Like you need to have these skills, but it is a set of skills to learn. The idea that dating is a stage of life. I really like it because it's kind of would be a new stage of life, right? So stages of life would be like childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and You know, recently think about life course theory or other kind of research on stages of life would be, like I said, adolescence, but also marriage and grandparenthood and launching of kids is our other kind of stages of life in adulthood. But that stage before partnering, when you're an adult is relatively new historically, right? Used to be that we lived with our parents. And then when we moved out of our parents' home was when we, you know, partnered with our future spouse. So I think that's really fascinating too. It's a new stage of life. So with that, of course, comes new skills that we have to kind of learn.
2: It sounds like this Marcus character re-entered the world of dating after mm. relationship formation and then relationship dissolution, mm-hmm. which I think speaks to your sort of reflection on dating being a process that we can be going through that varies in terms of amount of time for people, but also that people can re-enter After divorce, after widowhood, it's a stage of life that's a lot more fluid maybe than developmentally how we typically consider stages of life. It's a process when it intersects with those other developmental stages of our life, how the dating process can shift and evolve. Like it sounds like it did for this character. Absolutely.
0: And, you know, I like that idea of it being fluid. I think so many times when we think about like, well... I should be dating like this, Mm. or I should have already found this person because we know we do what often is very natural is compare ourselves to our friends, even our family's history. Like my parents married right out of high school. We don't account for all of these contextual factors in our life and how every person's contextual factors are different. And so for some, they put career as a priority. So it's going to obviously influence the way they show up and the way they go through their dating history, but still at the same time, they want that same course that somebody else that they know has. So I wish there was a level of real curiosity and openness to the dating process in ways that I don't know that we all show up. Sometimes there's this pressure in the sense of like, if I don't do it this way, it reflects somehow right. on me as a person or the kind of partner that I could be to someone. And it would be nice if we were all able to show ourselves more compassion in this stage of life because it is quite a journey and it mm-hmm. brings us so many different people Right? It come through our lives in this phase. And I wish we could embrace it, I guess, a little differently is what comes to mind for me. It's just that way we embrace it. Some of us have like a contentious relationship with the idea of dating. And so I think that gets in the way sometimes too of just really feeling really centered in the process of doing it.
1: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That
0: all said, my dating background is <laughs> almost non-existent. So who am I, at least in my personal life, to speak to that? Um, but I've seen enough friends to go through the process, and of course, in the research and what it shows there. Around the evolution of dating, and like you said, Patricia, about how it is in some ways sort of a new stage in the context of our history, and you know how we've come to understand dating. I think it's just still evolving. I think as we start to really see that it has a different place in our culture than it ever has before.
1: I agree. And I like a lot what you're saying about contextualizing our stage. I think both individually, like you were saying, center your education more, or some people center parenthood before getting uh, married. There are a lot of different things that you center. So that trajectory of romantic relationships might look a lot different. So your individual context, but also societal, like our culture, our time in history, The events that are going on, the economic status of the entire, you know, structure of our society, all of those things influence dating and marriage as well. So there's so many moving parts that making yourself adhere to one narrative, which oftentimes we're forced to do or we feel pressure to do. When you think about all of those different contexts, it doesn't make any sense at all. So Mm -hmm. allowing yourself that grace to recognize that that doesn't work for me and centering yourself in your own experience and being able to like live and appreciate it. Gosh, that sounds amazing. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled, A Fair Recovery exploring similarities and difference of injured and involved partners as you guys know my ever ending quest to dramatically read academic titles we're drawing people in what do you think a fair recovery (laughs) Recently published in the Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy, written by Dr. Erica Mitchell at University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I know her. And Drs. Andrea Wittenborn, Tina Tim, and Adrian Blow at Michigan State. These authors explore how couples recover from infidelity. Actually, a relatively common experience in relationships, as the authors cite data that 21% of men and 13% of women have engaged in sex outside of their primary relationship. Although affairs can result in intense emotional experiences for partners like anger, shame, anxiety, and depression, as well as decreased sexual satisfaction, financial loss, or separation, the authors point out that some couples do choose to stay together. Though prior research has pointed to factors like sharing children or sharing a home as increasing the likelihood a couple will stay together, the decision To work on the relationship after experiencing infidelity takes commitment and motivation. And the path towards healing requires a rebuilding of trust and safety in that relationship. However, there are few studies that have actually examined the healing process from both partners' perspectives. Very, very cool. Biotic, we're thinking systems, amazing. We love it. But both partners are key to the affair recovery process these authors explore the process from the perspective of partners that have had an affair and the person whose partner had an affair, specifically with couples who stay together after experiencing infidelity. Now, I think that this is really fascinating and key to the study. It's couples who decide to stay together. They were especially curious about similarities or differences in the way these two partners decided to renew their commitment to the relationship and how they each perceived trust an experienced healing. Sarah, this sounds a bit like we're setting up for some really cool qualitative stuff. So qualitative again is like interviews, words, looking at themes rather than quantitative, which is numbers and statistics. Am I right here? Yes, ma'am. Nailing. <laughs> Nailed
2: it. <laughs> Uh, we sure are setting up for that, or rather these authors set up for that. And right. they <laughs>
1: We didn't do this we, research.
2: Nope. We just enjoyed reading about it and brought it here to share with y'all. So this is dyadic qualitative research, just like you described, Patricia, meaning they interviewed both partners in nine heterosexual couples. So 18 individuals, they did a deep dive, if you will, into their experiences from each of their perspectives. So I think what's also important is they defined affair as sexual and or emotional act that's outside of the primary relationship and constitutes a breach of trust and or agreed upon boundaries of the relationship in terms of emotional or sexual exclusivity. So I think that's really, really important because these couples are defining this experience as outside of what they had agreed upon in terms of how they would operate their relationship. They recruited these couples through therapists, social media, ads, listserv ads, and their sample included couples who experienced single affairs in the current relationship. So not yep. multiple affairs, not both partners had an affair, just a single affair that only one partner had. Um, and they identify them as the partner who is involved, meaning that they had the affair and the other partner as the injured partner, mm-hmm. um, as the person whose partner had the affair. So I'll use that language in describing their findings. Although I think their findings probably suggest that both partners are experiencing injury, which I think is probably really right. especially key. And and also these couples could not currently be in therapy when they were doing these interviews. So they could have done therapy after the affair, but they were no longer in therapy oh, while doing the study. On average, they were about 39 years old, 60% white, about half had a bachelor's degree. Of the nine couples, seven were married, two were dating, and seven had kids. The average relationship length was 13 years. It ranged from one to 35 years, which oh, is a wow. pretty big range, right? Yeah, One year is very different than 35, yeah. and, but on average about 30 Thirteen years and seven of the partners who had had the affair were men, two were women and one in three, the affairs had lasted up to a month. And then the length of affairs ranged all the way up to two people that reported that the affair had lasted 25 to 36 months. So anywhere from less than a month to three years, which again is a bit of a range too. Yeah. Um, And that discovery of the affair had mostly occurred about 12 years prior, but a few as recently as within the six months. So there's some range in terms of what these couples' experiences were, um, which I think is an important caveat that the authors themselves make, but you're capturing a range of experiences, which is also good. Um, Important, I think, that they're doing a deep dive with such a range of infidelity experiences here. So in these interviews, they explored, as you shared, Patricia, the commitment to maintain the relationship. So they asked questions like, What were factors that made you decide to stay with your current partner? What characteristics of your partner contributed to your desire Mm. to remain in the relationship? I know. Very Interesting. interesting. They also explored that attachment bond. Again, that piece of trust and intimacy, feeling safe and secure. So they asked questions like, what did you do to begin building safety and trust again in your relationship? What did you do to regain feelings of closeness? And then they explored third that you shared, Patricia, that healing process. What role did forgiveness play? What were the most helpful things your partner did or said? So they asked these questions to each of these partners, and taking all of their verbal responses, then coded them to see what themes came up for both the.
1: Yes, just real quick, I wonder were the interviews done separately or together? I don't. So I had the same question, Patricia, oh. and I don't believe they
2: say in the paper. Mm-hmm. I imagine that because their goal was similarities and differences, that they yeah. interviewed them separately and then coded each of these eighteen interviews separately, and then yeah. looked for similarities and differences, but I looked through many times to make sure I wasn't missing it. So I don't think that I did, okay. but I was also curious. I think it would be interesting to also interview them together yeah, and see, see how that. their narrative sort of might shift or sort of build on each other when they're sort of in the presence of each other talking about this too, which I Absolutely. guess is probably also what therapy is, right? <laughs> <So it's just> <laughs> 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 uh, also fun. For me specifically. So what they found in these three different areas, again, commitment, attachment, and the healing process was really interesting. They found some overlap specific to the commitment, why they decided to stay. Both the injured and the involved partners referenced that they were influenced in their decision to stay by the presence of kids. The children helped them feel more connected to their partners. They also described that they still love their partner and they described their partners in really positive language that they were really caring. They also identified that the injured partner specifically was really stubborn. They were refusing to give up on the relationship um, I know. I thought that yeah. Yeah. it's a personal characteristic that makes sense. When they use that language, they had to dig yeah. in their heels. It's part of commitment. It wasn't just, that they were loyal. They were probably uh, also stubborn as hell, right? I'm not <laughs> going to give up here. Yeah. Many of them reference also a faith orientation that promoted that commitment to stay in the relationship. Okay. Injured partners specifically also talked about their connection to their partner that include these shared interests. We connect in lots of different levels. We have lots of things in common, mm-hmm. and that's part of why they wanted to stay. And they described mm-hmm themselves as strong. So not only were they stubborn and they refused to give up, but they were strong and they wanted to work through the pain of that betrayal. They described their partners as loving and committed and also really essential that their partners took responsibility for the affair, helped Mm -hmm. them to stay committed. Yeah, I can can imagine. Yeah. And that's brought up a few different times here in the healing process, a really big piece of Mm -hmm. the picture, but certainly informs Mm -hmm. their thinking about why they remained committed. Um, Whereas involved partners described that they had really come to value some characteristics. Of their partner after the affair that maybe they were not sort of paying attention to before. That it's not just that they're working a lot, for example, it's they're contributing to the stability of this family. They're committed to our financial security. So they're taking on maybe some other perspectives of characteristics of their partner that they could value. They describe themselves as loyal, loving, and caring, and their partners also as stable and strong. So there is some overlap too in how the injured partners, for example, are seeing themselves and how their involved partners then describe them, which oh. I think is. Really interesting. So it's not necessarily an overlap in how they saw themselves, but an overlap in how I see myself and my partner sees me. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, pretty cool and really important. It would make sense for relationships that are staying together that both of these people see the injured partner, the person who did not experience a affair, as stubborn and strong. That's a lot of work they're putting into the yeah. commitment and recommitting, right? So I think that's pretty positive.
1: And I also wonder if it speaks to that underlying foundation you kind of referred to in the beginning. But in my opinion, the fact that both partners kind of describe one person similarly means that mm. that Person sees themselves and the partner mm. sees them in a very, very yeah. similar way, which yeah. means that they've done a lot of work getting to know each other. Yeah. Either through yep. this process or the other process, that they see each other in the, in the same way, which is just so critical in a relationship, doing yeah. that foundational work.
2: No, I think that's really important, Patricia. And I think you'll hear that in these other two dimensions they mm-hmm. explore also. And I think it's a really key takeaway that you're describing the benefits that potentially can come from some of the therapy that a lot of these participants have done. Most of these participants were engaged in some individual Mm -hmm. or couples therapy, which I think is key. Probably some of the evidence of that work you are hearing in these themes, which I think is an important caveat. So the attachment dimension, that bond, that trust and security piece that they explored, here they found quite a bit of overlap between partners. They really described that rebuilding of trust and safety as happening through communication, communication that was really open, especially about the affair, and that that communication and talking all the time about everything helped them regain closeness that they had lost. Therapy was listed here as a real key about how they built- trusting each other again. It also was described by both partners as important to give the injured partner access to everything, phone, passwords, geographical location. They described it as part of how they rebuilt trust and safety, that the injured person had access to that, which was potentially more necessary at the beginning of the healing, sort of right after the discovery of affair, than it was sort of long-term and spending more time together, creating more opportunities to connect Injured partners really talked about that connection piece, rebuilding trust and closeness through spending time together. And also their partners being really responsive to their needs for comfort. That when they felt like they needed to be comforted, they felt like their partner showed up for them and was responsive to that. Whereas involved partners felt like their injured partner was maybe available to respond at times, but also that sometimes they were dismissive. They were sort of more focused on their own pain Mm. Um, and their descriptions of how this affected their sexual relationship varied quite a bit. So there mm-hmm. were some people that said it had no impact, some people that said it was a real benefit. Injured partners said it could be a roller coaster effect. Uh, some Mm -hmm. of the involved partners said it had a negative impact at the beginning. So that was sort of a little bit all over the place. The healing process, a little bit less overlap here. Both partners identified, again, therapy as helping them decide what they needed the most. Lots of conversation, lots of communication, perceived forgiveness as absolutely essential. Um, Sex could be seen Mm -hmm. as a tool for healing and reassurance and regaining closeness. And then also reassurance through reminding their partner that they loved them. Mm -hmm. It sounded like it was especially something the involved partners were describing being intentional about and in. Injured partners needing the affair to be open for discussion and involved partners needing to talk about what led to the affair. Both of them need to understand what the affair was about and what led to that, which mm-hmm. I think lots of therapists would probably say is extremely essential for therapy after infidelity has <laughs> happened. Trust. It's a
1: scientific yeah. term, extremely essential. Extremely. That's right. <laughs> in
2: that moment, I was a clinical scholar. I took the <laughs> research and I put it in regular language for I people. I love it. What and- yeah, um, here it's just Really? That's right. I think, as you said earlier, Patricia, therapy is key. Therapy is named throughout and mm-hmm. it's colored, I'm sure, by the fact that these um, participants, most of them rather, went to some form of therapy. But I think we might also say, as other researchers would also say, that therapy is very, very helpful here. There's no need to go it alone, especially when I think trust and rebuilding safety and um, reevaluating commitment. These are big themes to be dealing with on your own. And so if um, infidelity is something you're facing, therapy can be really very helpful, especially um, if you're sort of weighing whether or not to stay together or sort of wanting to stay together and work on your relationship. This is not easy stuff to do. I think the other sort of through line here in these findings is pain and healing is happening on both sides of this story. Mm -hmm. And what they identified as essential was open, honest, ongoing communication, spending time together. This process of forgiveness, I think was really, really key process. It was not a one-time event. Mm -hmm. It was not a one-time apology. There was healing and closeness and forgiveness that need to happen. And one piece that they talked about, I think that was really interesting is also self-forgiveness. So there was betrayals that happened in the relationship before the infidelity. And you have to talk about the route, the path that occurred before the affair, but also that the person who had the affair has to learn and work on forgiving themselves to be able to show up as whole to the relationship too. And um, the shared responsibility for healing, I think was really very beautifully outlined in this paper.
0: You know, I have studied infidelity for a while. And so I, when you sent me the article for this week, I was very excited. You know, there's always stuff coming out, but you know I'm always looking to see sort of what angle perspective folks take. And so reading this was really interesting because what I felt was helpful with this article, part two was the fact that it really did try to, have a balance between the voices. Often we privilege yeah. the voice of the person who mm, is good point. been injured, right? And so we definitely, I think, lean into the idea of affairs with sort of a, a real empathy and attuned to the needs of the injured party. And here, mm-hmm. it was really nice to see it more of a balance between the person who committed the infidelity and the person who felt injured by it. And so that was really nice not to see it skewed in one direction yeah. and to really honor the voices of both which is one of the things i really enjoy about qualitative research is that yeah. it gives voice to folks who sometimes are often you know considered the pathologizer or deviant or the person who is considered the yeah. wrongdoer so that was really something i appreciated and a few things that you both have said the idea that the injured party is one or the other is really not consistent with how the couple actually show up mm. in the experience. And definitely, thinking, you know, from a therapeutic lens as a, a couple therapist, I see both parties really struggling and really mm. in pain. Yeah. And so this, I think, reflects that this is something that genuinely, well, one person may have committed the act, the effects of it are both people are hurting. And particularly when we talk about the party that committed the infidelity, I really try to remind sort of folks, including couples when working with them, that that person is very disillusioned oftentimes by their own behavior and that they too are struggling with what they did. And so what I didn't see the article talk about, and I get it because it was through the lens and the voice of couples, right? Um, if it had been maybe from a therapist or the researcher side, you would have probably heard more about the trauma aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the trauma piece, especially when you're talking about how do you recover is Mm -hmm. really addressing the trauma that oftentimes is part of the experience and the work that is done in the therapy. Because, you know, we refer to it as like a small T trauma, but the symptoms that couples experience are very consistent with PTSD symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so that came up for me as I was reading the article and just how much both of them are really struggling to Mm -hmm. understand and heal from that experience. And so I appreciated that it did acknowledge the party who was involved.
1: Yeah. yeah. Forever obsessed with researchers that take that added step of adding that dyadic lens of looking at Mm -hmm. both people because from a research perspective, it is a lot harder. You have to get the Mm -hmm. individual, but a partner, it takes a lot more labor to do that type of high level research. So kudos to this team for doing that. I really love this conclusion, the takeaway of shared responsibilities for healing. And it, might be that, you know, it's a selection effect that couples who agreed to participate in this study sure. have this idea of this shared responsibility, but it seems really critical that both of them are taking responsibility and have this shared healing journey um, together. I think we could perhaps generalize this, of course, to other couples who experience this type of injury and affair injury, but I wonder if it could also be attributed to other types of injuries or betrayals in relationships. There's a lot of research on like financial betrayals, you know, one person overspends or doesn't stick to a budget or something more extreme than that. There are a lot of other types of injuries that occur in relationships. Um, And I wonder if this type of process could be attributed to that as well. It's Mm -hmm. where my mind is going.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that selection effect is important though, in terms of how The success of these couples recommitting to each other and healing and going through this process can inform then what we do to help support other couples who are wanting to end up where these couples have that sharing that responsibility for healing and emphasizing forgiveness on both parts, but also that self-compassion piece is I think uh, very valuable. When I think
0: about this article or when I read it, I was like, you know, one of the things maybe I thought about could be helpful here is early on that it's like situated in this idea that this body of literature really comes from doing the couple work. Like it is really these conclusions, as much as I know you folks know, and couples can get to that place, a lot of it is unpacked in the couple work. And so like I was reading this and I was really curious what kind of couple work did they do? Like, yeah, I don't right. know that the article talked specifically about that, but I was, you know, therapeutic models approach uh, infidelity quite differently. Oh, um, good point. And so, you know, emotionally focused therapists might approach it very differently than, you know, somebody using more of an internal family systems perspective or behavioral therapy. So I was like, this is. Or even a non systemic
1: model, like a uh, psychotherapy type of model.
0: Yeah. And it is one of the most difficult sort of areas to support couples through. And so I would have liked to see more like, Contextualizing using sort of the therapeutic sort of background to really situate some of these conclusions based on like what kind of therapy did folks have to really get to this place good- in terms of their understanding of what they needed to move through the affair. Woo-hoo!
1: Boo! Boo! Boo-hoo, yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear advice from parents, families, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just actually isn't good for relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook at Attached Podcast, or go straight to the source, uh, attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or YouTube, you guys, the kids love it. And as always, consider sharing the podcast with a loved one. You know how people love podcasts forced upon them. It's one of the favorite things. So go ahead, do it. Just play it really loudly in public areas. People will love it. They'll say, say, pray tell. What is that Then that is playing upon your phone? And you will <laughs> simply say, oh, attach podcast. It's a really easy conversation <laughs> to have. People will love it, I promise. I'm going to try it. A few months ago, I came across a card game called Red Flags. Um, It's about relationship characteristics and deciding if two good relationship qualities and one bad relationship quality, aka a red flag, if you would stay in a relationship or not. But I thought it would kind of be fun to get the perspective of some marriage and family therapists um, and relationship scientists about this purported good and bad aspects of relationships. So the game itself is kind of like apples to apples. Have you guys ever played that game? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. So basically you hand people out good cards and red flag cards and you, know, you each take a turn. You lay down two good cards, each person and lay down a red flag to the uh, single, and you try to convince them as to why they should date your person. We're not going to really play that version of the game, but I am going to randomly draw two good cards and a red flag. And I just want your perspective as to whether you think it's a red flag or not, or if it really is a good characteristic or not based on research and maybe some of your own experience. I don't expect you to say yes, I would date them or no, that you would date them. We're not going to make those types of decisions. Um, We're just going to have a conversation about it. You guys ready? Yes. Let's try. Okay. So I'm not going to force you guys to do a drum roll, but I kind of want to. Okay. First, (laughs) the good cards are called perks. Oh, okay. Travels a lot. Okay. That's a perk. Okay. Second perk. Can fire your most hated coworker or boss. Hmm. Red flag. (laughs) That last one wasn't a red flag. That was was a perk. Constantly (laughs) taking selfies. So we have the two perks. Travels a lot. Can fire your most hated coworker or boss. Red flag. Constantly taking selfies. Is there any research to support whether these are in fact uh, perks or red flags? Or therapeutic experiences that you guys think. Woods, you get to know uh, first. <laughs> sure. So I am most
2: concerned about the perk that I'm clearly dating somebody high up in administration <laughs> for which they are <laughs> violating some clear HR rules. So I'm not sure about what the research might say <laughs> about specifically violating that HR rule. However, that's a pretty big power imbalance And potentially poses some risks for myself as well. Has the power to fire my most hated colleague or boss means they also have the power to fire me. And I think (laughs) research would suggest that addressing that power imbalance and potentially the consequences (laughs) from human resources (laughs) would be really important.
1: Ethical violations.
2: Yes. I'm less worried about the selfies. There's probably research about selfies. I don't know it. They are hopefully not also doing that at work all the time. Cause then we've got maybe multiple HR violations. on <laughs> the only on... piece I can hear is the power imbalance. I'm, I'm less concerned about that red flag. So we're thinking
1: that maybe the perk should actually be a red flag. It ah. sort of
2: feels like that for me. Yeah. I'll be interested to see what Justin says
1: session not
2: <laughs> I agree when we're talking
0: about a partner who can come in and sort of decide on someone else's fate like that sort of swiftly and especially in a work circumstance I don't know that that feels like a healthy way of approaching relational issues in a work environment and like you said for all of the HR reasons that doesn't feel like a perk but I do have some ideas about the selfies thing has come up for me a lot over the years because I'm not a selfie taker but any means if i do take a selfie it's to make sure i don't have a blemish on my face or something and immediately naturally
1: no that right? makes there's, sense
0: you will never find me posting a single thing <laughs> but that is my sort of comfort level i realize and enjoy actually other people's pictures there's sort of a quota limit to how many selfies one is allowed to post in my room
1: <laughs> <laughs> um
0: yeah, yeah. Is, daily selfies
1: is, maybe um are challenging
0: unless it's your career right like <laughs> i know that there's
1: influencers who do you know things
0: that require that. And they have a lot of followers who look to that. I also think, you know, when you're talking about selfies with other people, let me ask a question. Please. Do selfies only extend to (laughs) taking a picture of oneself or (laughs) does it extend to taking a
1: picture with other people? I would say that that might be a philosophical question (laughs) and one that I am neither hip nor knowledgeable (laughs) enough to answer. I think you just define it however you want to in your experiences?
0: I don't see it as a red flag when it extends to taking selfies because it's your work or there are other people right. in the picture. I do it with my family all the time when we go on outings, you know, we even have that stick. It took a while to pull it okay. out. We definitely just sort of watched it in a box for a while. I'm like, do we do this? Do we not? Like, but we did it. We pulled it out. We I love it. it. It's great. It really yeah. captures the background well and all of our faces in there. And I so I don't think it's black and white with a selfie for sure. I don't think it's a clear answer here
1: i tend to agree i think we're saying that we are a little bit more concerned about this perk than we are about their purported red flag i think is where we're at there are you ready for the next one yes are you sure you seem <laughs> a little bit scared <laughs> yeah. um perk one can fly
2: <laughs> oh. look
1: on Woods' face oh. perk two was on the news for rescuing a kitten red flag are you guys ready yeah Tells you to calm down after everything you say. Oh, hell no. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: <laughs> instant reaction. Woods, uh, Perker, red flag. How are we feeling about this uh, combo here? Do you want me to read them again? No, I've got it. Uh, I think the
2: <laughs> No, I remember that. Oh no, I, I think the red flag is a real issue. I think research will suggest that lots of different variations mm-hmm. uh, invalidating your partner and their emotional experience, let alone potentially interrupting them, not listening to them. It's poor communication skills. To tell your partner to calm down when they are speaking is incredibly rude and unhelpful and is not going to create a satisfying relationship. And if you're on the news for rescuing a kitten, you live in an extremely small town. So (laughs) the perks aren't outweighing. I assume can fly means like on an airplane, you know, like the rest of us. So uh, <laughs> for me personally, there's little to outweigh that red flag. Also, reason really should say, yeah, that's genuinely a red flag. It's no good. Cesson, uh, yeah. what are you thinking? Uh, I'm okay
0: with the fly one. I thought this game was based on real things, but maybe <laughs> there's lots of different elements to it. I but I, I'll assume that it's an okay thing to do. As far as the kids, I want to live in a city where that's making the news because yeah. On my local news station, there are a lot of things that make the cut before that. So honestly, I would love to live someplace where saving a kid makes the news. Sounds like a really nice place to live. Yeah, (laughs) But as far as the third item the red flag yeah it is when the very thing you say creates the opposite effect it's definitely a problem right when you tell somebody to calm down it actually physiologically creates a response that right creates really the opposite of calm and i think we do that as partners sometimes the thing we say to think we're being maybe not even helpful but that will lead to the kind of result we're looking for can actually have the opposite effect so it would be nice for people to really understand like what comments are really unhelpful to lean into when in a moment of uncertainty about how to manage a situation and you see your partner potentially getting, you know, upset or hurt and is responding? Because emotions are a primal response so when you say calm down when somebody's not feeling calm, you're asking them to essentially you know go against what their body actually needs to be able to do, which is feel what it feels. That being said, I think like Sarah said very well, I can't tell you how helpful it is to validate your partner. The importance of attunement it goes so far it's for many it feels like well, is that all it takes? Yes in so many ways when your partner is upset and you just say I see you upset and I'm sorry you're upset right now or I'm sorry you're hurting or I'm sorry, that can make a huge difference between, you know, where the conversation goes next. So a comment like calm down, if you could just tweak it and turn it into I'm seeing that you're hurting right now, or whatever you're seeing, but yeah. you're doing it in a way where you're using
1: softness and kindness in your voice it goes a very long way. Yeah, or checking in—you might know your partner well enough to kind of state what the emotion is. But like, are you mad right now? Are you yeah. upset right now? Is also a great conversation starter. Um, I will be honest—I definitely agree with both of you. This tells you to calm down after everything you say. Like when I said that out loud, I felt anger in my body. <laughs> I <was> like, oh. <laughs> I don't respond well to that. Uh, <laughs> so we both agree that uh, the perks Um, certainly don't outweigh this red flag and definitely um, good job, red flag card game. That is an actual (laughs) red flag that um, is substantiated by a substantial amount of research. Okay. They can
2: fly themselves right to hell.
1: (laughs) Oh, oh, okay. Bye. -bye. (laughs) Oh, Oh, goodness. (laughs) Um, No, yes, I concur. Okay. Last one Are you guys' research. Mm. Research. (laughs) Hashtag (laughs) research. (laughs) Perk one. Loves the 80s. Oh, yeah. Perk two, yoga instructor. Oh, no. Where are we headed? Red flag. Never stops playing the ukulele. Woods. (laughs) Okay. All right. So
2: they have really defined interests and hobbies. The 80s, (laughs) yoga, and ukulele. I feel like I'm getting a real image of this person um, so I think those are not <laughs> my hobbies, and um, research would say, however, <laughs> I, I, I'm not asking you if you would take this person. <laughs> research would say I might not be attracted to this person based on that specific mm. description um, because we might have nothing in common. yes, and yet <laughs> you clearly could be beautiful and. <laughs> I feel like that's the only like research that's coming to mind is that that person has such defined interests that you would want to think about how much you have in common and maybe whether to sort of explore the more meaningful aspects of their personality to decide whether or not that would be
1: a good partnership. Did I do it? Is really okay? good job trying to put something meaningful out of that one. Yikes. I applaud that one. Sesson, you want to take a shot? Read the perks to me again. Yeah, of course. Loves the 80s. Yoga oh, yeah. instructor. Never stops playing the ukulele is the red flag.
0: You know, I have to say I love the 80s as well. There's something about the color schemes of the 80s and the big hair and the music. Um, And my glory days were in the 80s. <laughs> did <laughs> you peaked so early? You were born in 19... You were like what in 19, 80, 90, right? Like I was a Carter about? baby. I was born in 80. And Carter, so in 80. it really feels like I had a full decade of experiences um, <laughs> to pull from. Fortunately, I feel really blessed to have had a really good childhood in that way. So mm. I have very fond memories of the 80s. the 80s. I have a lot of family around, you know. There's a good, warm place in my heart for the 80s. Yeah, and so the you can movies, connect with
1: someone. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: The eighties really rocked. Let's see if I (laughs) remember for Carter 80s. Can we talk political on this show? I'm going to say a comment, but I was going to say I could have done without the Reagan era, but uh, yeah, which was most of the eighties, which was quickly followed by Bush one. The eighties, yeah, Yeah. yeah. Reaganomics. I could have done without that, but it's all good. Pop culture in the Uh, eighties,
1: though, spot on.
0: If we're talking about pop culture, you have Me, Cobra Kai, and uh, Karate Kid, and all of the different sort of pop culture elements that came out. I still watch and I still enjoy. So big fan of the eighties. So any partner who sort of has a connection with the 80s, we'd have some stuff in common. I'll speak to the ukulele one because (laughs) I have a very musical family, me not included. And by... Family, I mean, the family I married into, you know, my partner plays all kinds of instrument, including a good sort of understanding of the ukulele and has played it a couple of times randomly places. Yeah, he just picks up an instrument. I'm like, you know, that instrument? What? Is this person your husband that we're talking about right now? Yeah. Uh, He's very, he's he the piano, loves the guitar. 80s. Is he also a yoga uh,
1: instructor? Is this yeah, your how it's <laughs> yoga is? Is he, is he deep
0: into yoga? He's not into the oh, yoga. Okay. Into the yoga. That's how connected I am to the yoga. <laughs> San Diego a big like yogi town. It's <laughs> not my thing. I tried it a handful of times. You can't keep still like that. If I married someone who wasn't yoga, I could be down with that, you know. But I do think the ukulele, if played well, mm-hmm. is very soothing. Okay. And so, you know, it, it just depends in- on the touch. That
1: people yeah. Have with the so not the red flag that they mm-hmm. think it is. No. Mm-hmm. Not and- especially if they're singing sweet music to me. You know,
0: yes. they make up a song that goes about with the you? ukulele about wow. me too. Wow. Me. Oh, From it's about the, the awkwardness. About the
1: 80s. <laughs> While they're in pose. <laughs> Combine <laughs> all of that. <them. laughs> this last one, we're not really sure if it is a red flag or perks we kind of lean towards that maybe the ukulele isn't quite the red flag that think that it is Um, but overall potentially a fun game even though not all of the (laughs) red flags and perks line up with uh, research it's okay it's still fun to play so have at it. Yeah,
0: that was nice. Re- reminiscing on the 80s. Thank you very much. I enjoyed that. I love the I'll 80s. i thinking
1: about it all day. Good. Thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on the social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.